I'm an alcoholic? I did. Okay, now I actually, I think I heard Michael speak in California a long time ago, but the first time that I really got to know her, uh, this is back when I was delegate or alternate delegate or something, it was about 15 years ago, and, and so Barbara gets invited to speak at this New Year's Eve thing they do over in uh, Athens, uh, Georgia, and I thought, well, I'll have a phone call coming because I'm the male side, I'm the AA side of this. And instead, they said, no, Michael Earl is speaking. Uh, and so I thought, well, they got a guy that's going to be, I'd forgotten about hearing her over, so they got a guy that's going to be speaking. And I said, it's odd they have somebody that's, you know, not related to her. You know, why didn't they ask me? So um, uh, anyway, so we go over there, and it was this Michael who I actually had heard before out in California but forgot. So her husband, Ted, who is just one of the nicest people in the world, uh, and I were two trophy husbands that night and just sat around. And so and they both gave great talks, but there were a lot of people who thought they were uh, a lesbian couple. So, it, it, uh, <laughs> so that made it even more exciting. You know, we're an open group. And so, uh, um, you know, so... Uh, Anyway, but that's that was the first time we really had a great time together, and then every time since then we get together, we have a great time. We've been able to go to a lot of things together, but Michael does something. Everybody in my family, my little sister's a retired colonel. I had two tours in Vietnam. My dad's a retired colonel for generations were uh, in the military, and I have a soft spot for anybody who does something for the military, and the thing that Michael and Ted do the most that is they take the troops in from Fort Gordon over there near where they live in Augusta, and they have a big book study for them because the military does stuff to tell them they're alcoholic, but they don't really help them. They actually teach them the big book um, and, uh, and and save a lot of lives of these guys that go out and stand up for you and me in uniform, and uh, Michael and Ted take care of them. They even, Michael has even arranged a burning bush incident for some of them that she may tell you about. So, But she's a great member. She's came in just after I did, and uh, we've been friends, and she's one of the best AA members I know. Michael. Yeah. Hi, my name's Michael, female alcoholic. Hey, I was looking for the whole letter that, um, that Dick had on emotional sobriety. It comes out of language of the heart, and it's emotional sobriety, the next frontier which says a lot. <laughs> it's, you know, after getting sober, we're going to have to address some things. And to me, I want to tell you what emotional sobriety is for me is step 6, 7, and 12. That's what emotional sobriety is to me. Um, one thing I want to say is for all of you, you've heard this over and over this weekend, <clears throat> actions speak louder than words. So just... Take the actions. Don't worry about the words because we've heard them all before. And if there's no action that goes with them, it's just it's pretty useless. And I also want to say that absolute highest you get in Alcoholics Anonymous is sober. It's not a speaker. It's not a delegate. It's not a secretary. The absolute highest you get in this program is sober. But there is a difference between between being sober and dry. And so I hope you all get the, the sobriety that I have gotten in this program. Um, <coughs> like this? <laughs> okay, I will do my... <laughs> no. I don't know, do I? 
Okay, so anyway, I have this format that I'm going to use a little bit, but I'm going to really give you my, my version of emotional sobriety because there are several versions out of this. This is a workshop Polly and I started doing together, and she wrote um, the defect, and I wrote the solution, And um, but there's some things that I have uh, different feelings about, which is all through Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, and the book, the book says God gave us brains to use. And so there are things that we're going to have different opinions about. I mean, some people burn their inventories. Other people don't burn their inventories. I mean, we have that option. It doesn't say what to do with your inventory in the book. So, I mean, we do uh, have brains. God gave them to us to use. And so do what works for you. I really believe do it. And I really believe that... The disease of perception is such a cunning, baffling, powerful thing and that you need to work on that perception. So whatever that perception is, it can work in your life. Um, I once heard if you take one step towards God, God takes ten steps towards you. And in this lifetime as we know it, we will never reach God's level of understanding. But once we're on a spiritual path, God does not want to lose one of us. So he comes to each one of us and he works for each one of us at our individual level of understanding. And that's why what works for me might not work for you. What works for you might not work for me. But the beauty of Alcoholics Anonymous is whatever you believe, it will work within the 12 steps. Okay. <laughs> okay. As the big book so clearly states, if we want the AA Al-Anon way of life, we must become willing to go... I can't see my lines now. <laughs> How's that? Okay. <laughs> we, met, we become willing to go to any length to get it and be ready to take certain steps. To stop ourselves from drinking and stinking thinking, we recognize these as symptoms. We must go to the underlying causes of our physical condition and mental obsessions. Most of us have discovered a major cause of our living problems stem from emotional immaturity. We seem to be people who have no defenses against the onslaught of misguided feelings. We tend to go to extremes in coping with emotional pain and discomfort. Usually, though, some kind of attempted escape. We become aware of, we become aware after coming to the program that these intoxicants we need to be aware of are not alcohol and drugs, but emotional intoxicants. Anger, self-pity, intolerance, resentment, jealousy, dishonesty, self-deception, criticism, fear, depression, and blame, to name just a few. And um, I was—I really was interested. Dick said that he came from Dr. Bob's line of sponsorship, and I came from Dr. Bob's line of sponsorship. And I know there are some movements going around now that don't believe in doing a six and seven, a formal six and seven. But when I was taken through the steps by this group from Dr. Bob's line of sponsorship, that's exactly what they had. We had to do in writing a list of our character defects. And how, and I'm going to kind of touch on them as we go through here, but this is how I work with women. When we get to, when I listen to a fifth step, and if somebody's having trouble with their fourth step, I bring them over to the house, I sit down and I help them do it. And we get four and five over at the same time. But then in the book it says, 
go home, take the book from the shelf. Well, hopefully your book's not on the shelf. If you want to be real literal, take your book, put it on the shelf so you can pull it down. Um, you know, and spend an hour with God and and look at those first five proposals and ask if you've omitted anything. And so I believe home is in the heart. And so these... <laughs> Good. Okay, so now everybody's like, uh, <laughs> uh, oh yes, uh, home is in the heart. And so when I do a four and five with somebody, they do not go home to their house. They go into my AA room, which is really cool. You guys should see it. I have 200 camels in it. Um, do all of you know what the cam camel represents in AA? You wouldn't. Oh, I know. I go to a lot of places. They've never heard of the camel. In 1948, somebody sent Bill Wilson a camel on its knees. You can go to Stepping Stones, and it's still there on the mantle. And the plaque on the on the camel says that the camel gets on its knees twice a day, once in the morning to pick up its load, once in the evening to let go of its load, and it goes 24 hours without a drink. So since that 66 years, it's been used a, a lot. I mean, my home group used to give increments of sobriety, whether it's 30 years or 30 days, uh, keychain with camel on it and the increment of sobriety. In Oregon, there was a, a group that when you got your first year, you got a camel pin with a ruby in the eye. There are Alano clubs that are called the camel clubs. So it really, <laughs> it's really a big deal in a lot of places. But um, anyway, I have over 200 of them in my AA room and uh, it's just, it's just a beautiful room. So I have them go in to this room and spend that hour with God looking over the first five proposals, taking that action, but they do it in my AA room. And so after uh, they're done and we get together again, if they've left anything out, they share it with me. And if not, we immediately do six and seven. And how we do this is by listening to their inventory, I pick out certain things that I think are <laughs> glaring defects that I could hear, and I mentioned them, and if they don't agree, they don't have to put it down. But if they agree, they put it down. And then they list defects that they know they have that are troubling them. So we get this list of defects, and we read them out loud. We get on our knees. We say the seventh step prayer, asking God to remove these defects of character. Then we fold that piece of paper in half. We just fold it and go on the other side, and write what we can do to help God remove the defect. Because a six, seven, and eight in the big book and the beginning of nine are all on one page. Bill wanted to stretch six steps into 12 for spiritual reasons. And he took actions that they always took at the oral inventory, gave him numbers, six, seven, and eight, and threw them on one page. It doesn't say much about it. But in the 12 and 12, Bill says, God will not render you white snow without your cooperation. He says, a man that repeatedly works on his other defects of character grows in the image of his creator. doesn't say you have to conquer him or get over him. It just says repeatedly work on him. And then he addresses the fact that some of our defects of character are harder to remove than alcohol. Alcohol, I mean, alcoholism is not a natural instinct. But some of our defects of characters are natural instincts that have gone amok. And these are natural instincts he gave to us for survival. And there's no way God can remove a natural instinct he gave to us for survival. So Bill says sometimes we might, might have to settle for patient improvement. 
and uh, that was just such a blessing when I when I read that chapter and I read it over and over. I mean, one of my my character defects, you know, is uh, obviously overeating. <laughs> And I had that under control in California for my first 15 years of sobriety. I was a size four and a size six. And I moved out here and because of a lot of surgeries and Georgia food and you know, I've gained all this weight back. But I still keep trying because I know every morning if I get up and try, I'm not a failure. You're not a failure unless you quit trying. And I have lost maybe 12 pounds now. Yay! <laughs> Not that big of a deal when you need to lose 60, but it's a start. And I feel good about myself when I'm eating right because I'm taking care of God's creation. You know, I'm putting my effort into taking care of what God gave me. So anyway, back to this. Okay. We seem to be people who have no defense against the onslaught of misguided feelings. We tend to go to extremes in coping with emotional pain and discomfort, usually through some kind of attempted escape. We become aware after coming to the program that the intoxicants we need to be aware of are not alcohol and drugs, but emotional intoxicants. Anger, self-pity, intolerance, resentment, jealousy, dishonesty, self-deception, criticism, fear, depression, and blame. To achieve emotional sobriety, we need a couple of attributes. A willingness to change and a power greater than our than ourselves that will provide the strength we need to change. We must recognize that progress is an unending journey and perfection an unreachable, unreachable goal. And while we have a long way to go, we must make the journey to stand still is stagnant. The following are some quotations that set the mood as we begin our journey of emotional sobriety. I can be myself when I am in a situation I like. I can be myself when I'm in a situation I don't like. That was from uh, some anonymous alcoholic. <laughs> when I first read it, I'm going, that wasn't from Alcoholics Anonymous, the book, and it's anonymous alcoholic. And then, of course, really have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Comes out off of page 58. Why should we assume the fault of our friend, wife, husband, father, mother, or child because they sit around our hearth or are said to have the same blood, the power men possess to annoy me, I give them by a weak curiosity. Emerson. I'd take that out of this <laughs> personally myself. You'll hear some opinions here. The solution rests with me. People can affect me only if I allow them to. I need not be influenced by others, for I am free to consult my own wishes and standards. With the help of my higher power, I can adorn my life with comfort, serenity, and enjoyment. It does not depend on any other person. The sooner I accept this fact, the sooner I will be able to face myself realistically. And that's on page 228 out of One Day at a Time. If we desire to stop or at least diminish emotional slips, binges brought to the surface and aggravated by the problem of alcoholism, then we are ready to say to ourselves, half measures avail us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We ask his protection and care with complete abandon. And of course, that's 59 out of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
When a drunk has a terrific hangover because he drank heavily yesterday, he cannot live well today. But there is another kind of hangover, which we all experience whether we're drinking or not. That is the emotional hangover, the direct result of yesterday and sometimes today's excesses of negative emotions, anger, fear, jealousy, and the like. It requires an admission and correction of errors. Twelve steps and twelve traditions and step ten. It's a spiritual axiom that every time we are disturbed, no matter what the cause, there is something wrong with us. Okay, I, I don't know how many people heard me share last night about um, my daughter being kidnapped and almost murdered, raped and almost murdered. She had three years of sobriety and I had four. And I had a terrible problem with the sentence in the big book and it says, absolutely nothing in God's world happens by mistake. It was out of Dr. Paul's story. Uh, I have a disease of perception, so I perceive that to mean that if nothing in God's world happens by mistake, then that had to be an act of God. I wanted to leave Alcoholics Anonymous, and I wanted to leave God. And just a series of spiritual experiences helped me connect with my God again. And all I can tell you today, what I know about God, is that God is good, and good is God. And if it's not good, it's not of God. Man has free will. That man was acting on his free will, and my daughter was just a victim. Bill Honeycutt said, if we didn't have free will, we wouldn't all be sitting in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. We'd all be perfect people. But I had so much trouble with that sentence. And because a lady whose tragedy was worse than my daughter's made a statement to me about it must be God's will, because in the big book it says absolutely nothing in God's world happens by mistake, I went off on her like a crazy woman. I started screaming at her that that wasn't written by the first hundred alcoholics. It's not in the first 164 pages of the big book. I took the big book, I slammed it down, I said, that's not even in the first two editions of this book. And I just, she just had these crocodile tears coming down her face, and that's when I realized I had a resentment about something in the big book. And because it was not only hurting me, now it's hurting other people. And because it was hurting other people, I really came to a place of being willing to give it up. And that's all I can say is willingness is a key that's indispensable. So I can't just give it up. I couldn't just give it up. But I was willing. I was willing. And God brought about circumstances where I was able to give it up. Dr. Paul became my spiritual advisor. He didn't mean anything like that when he wrote that sentence. A lot of things came crystal clear because I had the willingness to give it up. Now, this is my other resentment. <laughs> it's a spiritual axiom that every time we are disturbed, no matter what the cause, there is something wrong with us. I get disturbed over a lot of things. I get disturbed over reading about child abuse. I get disturbed about hearing inventories of things that have happened to women that should never have happened. Things that I've never even thought of or heard of or knew people could do to other people. It bothers me. It really does. But you know what? I think it bothers God. Seriously, I think that's the part. God does not want that for us. So I have problems with this, but I'm willing 
I'm willing for God to help me come to terms with it because it's in, it is in the 12 and 12. So I'll put that out there. I'm willing to come to terms with it. But it's going to, I don't know what it'll take, but I really do believe God, God doesn't like it either. So finding ourselves locked into the intoxicating grip of certain emotions and suffering, the pain and mental hangover from these, we found it necessary to learn which ones are poisonous and threatening to our emotional sobriety and serenity. We learned that we can avoid these emotions and their crippling effect, crippling effect if we can act our way into right thinking. We do this by saying to ourselves, if I were not jealous, depressed, etc., what would I be thinking, feeling, or doing? We step out on faith after asking God's guidance, and we try to remember easy does it, but do it. The following list is by no means a complete register of emotional mischief makers. However, our recognition and treatment of these will certainly provide the strength, hope, and experience to overcome any others one day at a time, sometimes one moment at a time. And this is all, this workshop um, came out of um, uh, Emotional Sobriety, The Next Frontier. It's in the language of the heart. And in it, Bill talks about going through a major, major depression. And um, he talks about the St. Francis Prayer. You know, it's better to love than to be loved. It's better to comfort than be comforted. And he looked at that prayer over and over and over, and he knew that was the answer, but why didn't it work for his depression? And so what he finally came to was that he had dependencies, faulty dependencies. He even called his dependency on AA a faulty dependency. And he had to give up all these faulty dependencies in order to reach that place of St. Francis. So, and that's what this is basically about. And it's about giving unconditionally. He had, he, he didn't get, he did things to be applauded or, or patted on the back, or he was not into unconditional love and unconditional giving. And that journey is what really brought him into what he calls a state of mind in the sunlight of the spirit or some, something to that nature. So I can really relate to that. At first, I couldn't relate to that letter because when he said, even false, false dependency on AA, ooh, my mind shut <laughs> just like that. I didn't want to hear anything more about this, this letter. But I've come, I've come to know, I've done this workshop so much, I've come to know everything in a different light. Um, and I could relate to his faulty dependency because I remember Polly and I, when we lived in California, we, our home group was 300 people, and I sat on this side, even though she's my sponsor, because I had 50 million sponsees. She sat on that side because she had 50 million sponsees. I got more quality time with her when I moved to Georgia, because when we lived right there together, I didn't get much quality time with her. But, okay, if uh, one of her sponsees is celebrating her birthday, she gets up, all of her sponsees get up and say, I want to thank Polly from the bottom of my heart. She gave me the 12 steps. She gave me the 12 traditions. My life has changed so much. Thank you, Polly. My people get up there and say, I want to thank God. I want to thank the 12 steps, and I want to thank the 12 traditions. And they don't mention my name. And it bothered me. 
I thought, God, all the time I give these little brats and nobody even acknowledges me. And that, that just... That, uh, and I'm kind of embarrassed to share that with you, but that was how that affected me. I just... It hurt my feelings. and I'm a very sensitive alcoholic. Okay, first uh, defect we'll talk about is anger. A deadly poison to sanity and serenity, a special punch to those who want to be God in their own lives. Its impact succeeds in obliterating reason and self-control. One can enjoy being a human hurricane while plunged into the depths of emotional intoxicant. Sometimes the debris left after this storm is staggering. Um, I'm going to talk about your toilet seat. <laughs> because I've been married 20 years to the most wonderful man in the whole entire world. I lived in California, he lived in Georgia, and he had a beach house in South Carolina. And we had a long distance relationship. Um, I had to speak five weekends in a row. So I mean, I made a trip up to Georgia, he proposed to me, he was at the airport, he proposed to me. I mean, I've never, I've been married four times and I've never been proposed to. I don't know how I got married, but I was never proposed to. I've never had an engagement ring. And there he was at the airport with a bouquet of flowers waiting for me, and he proposed to me, and I had an engagement ring. It was just so awesome. I had a few weeks off from speaking, and so I stayed there. We got married on the beach in Edisto Beach. That's where we met. He started that convention and um, was there for four days, and I had to go back to California because I had five sets of tickets for five different conferences where I had to fly out of California. So I left my husband for... <laughs> for five weeks. And while I was gone, what he did is because he has this real high toilet and I'd have to run to the other end of the house and use that toilet. So I felt comfortable with my feet on the floor. And uh, when I got back to uh, Georgia, he had taken the closet and the bathroom and had them remodeled. And behind the door is his toilet and over here is my toilet. So we have two toilets in our bathroom. That's a great way to come to terms with this kind of resentment. There are solutions to everything. If just one whiff of anger sets up the compulsion to act on it, practice total abstinence. Should the compulsion get the upper hand, third and fifth step it. When sanity has returned, strength to resist taking the first drink of anger comes from daily use of the 12-step slogans and willingness to assume responsibility for one's own conduct. Intolerance, an emotional inebriant which fouls up 12-step work. It succeeds in blocking awareness of what has been shared with one in the program. It causes emotional bias and prejudice. And that really, I mean, there's a lot of intolerance in AA. You know that. <laughs> a lot of gossip comes with this intolerance. But I'm going to talk about something else that I was so intolerant about, it, and it was my mother. My mom was an alcoholic. I had to watch her prostitute. I had to watch her drink. I had to watch her commit, try to commit suicide. I mean, what I went through with my mom, I had a huge resentment. And after I got sober in AA, three months of sobriety, my uh, mom came back into AA, and she got sober. And she got four years of sobriety. And it was a gift. I mean, we really had an awesome relationship. But my mom did not get a sponsor. She did not work the steps. 
what she did, because cable had just gotten to be something people were doing, she went to cable producing school, and she was the second cable producer in Long Beach. And her show was called High on Life, and it was all about sobriety. And she got, she received many awards, LB awards, for these shows. But my mom's hanging out with other producers, my mom's drinking, and I'm intolerant, and how dare her do this on emotional, on, on High on Life when she's drinking. You know, we had fights about it. I, and from childhood, I was always looking at the negative. I never looked at anything positive about my mom. Anyway, because of these fights, she changed the name of her show to Senior City, and it was hysterical. I mean, it was so funny. She would do little skits like show you how hard it is for a senior citizen to open a peanut butter jar, or those child, child-proof caps on your medication. I mean, she did some skits that were just absolutely hysterical, and she won awards on that also. Um, then my mom came down with cancer, and uh, she just had... I never knew it, but she had just this personality, this way about her. And she, did, she told my sister and I, she said, I want to have my funeral before I die. <laughs> okay, okay, Mom. <laughs> so my sister and I planned this funeral before she died, and we called it the Awake Wake. And we had it, <laughs> we had it catered, and the caterers notified the newspaper. And Long Beach is a big city. The newspaper is very big. And all of a sudden, during this party and stuff, reporters came, and they had cameras or whatever you take pictures with and stuff. I was I was not real happy about it because they knew some, my sister just tells them everything. She's a normal person. Oh, my mom was an alcoholic. My sister's an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so the next morning I get up and I go get the newspaper. On the front page. The whole front page was this giant picture of my mom, my daughter's in back of her, and just the back of my head, and some of her friends around her. And it says, Awake, Wake. And it tells the story about my mom. I just couldn't believe it. It's in the newspapers. Now everybody knows. She runs around this party, and she's singing, It's my party. I'll die if I want to. I'll die if I want to. You would, too, if it happened to you. And um, that's in the newspaper. And so this is picked up by the Associated Press. So now the Associated Press has it, and it goes all over the United States. I don't know if it goes anywhere else. I don't know about the Associated Press, but it's all over. And we've got all these talk shows calling us. All these talk shows, every talk show you've seen is calling, trying to get my mom on their show. And I'm just baffled because she's drinking, she's not working a program, and all these things that she just thinks are so exciting, she doesn't realize she's dying and um, on morphine and alcohol. Anyway, she decided she wanted <laughs> she wanted the Maury Povich show, and so they are they like drama, you know. And my sister wanted to go with her, but she's too normal. They didn't want her. <laughs> they wanted me. <laughs> They wanted me and my daughter to be on the program. <laughs> and it was her last dying wish, and so I had to make that trip to New York. 
and the three of us are sitting there being interviewed by Maury Povich, and my sister was in the audience, and they asked her some questions, too. But they, he said, Marilyn, we hear that you're an alcoholic. And she goes, I've had a few bouts with alcohol, but I'm not an alcoholic. <laughs> and then they said, Michael, we, we hear you're an alcoholic, and I almost died. They broke my anonymity on TV. And I, did, I was just, I wasn't prepared, and I just said, um, I have 13 years of sobriety. That's all I said. I didn't mention AA or anything like that. And uh, they had my daughter read a beautiful letter to, to my mom. But the thing about the producer is he, was, he could see my mom on morphine and drinking, and he came up to me and he said, your mom's a nut. <laughs> and then he said, my, your daughter's too shy. You're going to have to carry this. If there's any silence, you're going to have to fill it in. And I'm going, I don't even want to be here. <laughs> so anyway, this, you put the camera on my mom on morphine and alcohol. She is a different person. She was so charming, I could not believe it. She's falling down drunk before we got into, uh, into the, whatever you call it, studio. Falling down drunk. And then they put the camera on her, and she is adorable. And he said, and I hear you sing a song. And she goes, I'd like to sing it for you, Maury. And she goes, it's my, <laughs> it's my, she got all these facial and her body movements and everything were just so adorable, I couldn't believe it. And then afterwards, Maury goes, because he was really for hospice, and my mom was in hospice, and he goes, Marilyn, our hero. And my mom goes, oh, Maury, meeting you was such a privilege. <laughs> they took us on a tour of all this stuff, and we went back to what we were doing, and my mom's back to falling down. She can't walk. She's slurring her words. And I just couldn't believe what happens when you put a camera on her. You know, I just—I never knew those things about my mom. I just never knew those. I knew the things that I didn't want to be like. I never saw things that were adorable about her. Now I have a a tape that they gave us of the four of us together: my mom, my sister, my daughter, and I. And I am so thankful that I have that. The gift was really for me because I had a really hard time when she finally died. And um, all that intolerance just went away. What I learned from this whole experience, and I took care of my mom, and I took her to work, and did a lot of things, taking care of her while she was dying. And the one thing I learned from all of this is that my whole life growing up, I was so focused on the things I hated about her, the things that I didn't want to be like that I missed. I missed all of those wonderful qualities. And she had a lot of wonderful qualities. And I just think so much about her today. It's been 22 years since she died. But I, I don't have any intolerance anymore. I just appreciate the things that were so wonderful about her. OK, solutions. <laughs> solutions, daily doses of live and let live and <laughs> an open mind. Seek to develop compassion, the highest form of emotional maturity. I think another of highest forms of emotional maturity is 
unconditional love. Absolute unconditional love. And it's not real easy to come to that place. It takes, it takes a lot of self-sacrifice. Seek to develop compassion, the highest form of emotional maturity. Begin with self-compassion. That is, be good to yourself. Self-compassion means realizing the meaning, quality, and intensity of one's own emotions. The emotional identification of self enables you to feel with others. Learn to distinguish between a person and his behavior and detach from the problem, but not the person. Self-pity. <laughs> my sponsor, I mean, she, I went through the steps, you know, the same way I take people through the steps. And we're listing my character defects. And she says, what do you think are your worst character defects? And I went, stealing? And she goes, no. I went, prostituting? She goes, not even close. She said, your main character defect is self-pity. And I was offended. <laughs> and I said, well, I feel like my self-pity is justified. Look at my childhood. And she told me in the most loving, compassionate way. She said, Michael, alcoholics cannot afford justified self-pity. And she had me start doing gratitude lists. On a daily basis, I would do gratitude lists. And I can tell you self-pity has been totally removed, and it has been removed for years and years and years, and I can't even believe I had all that self-pity. This program gave me a life that life on life's terms did not give me. But I came into AA, and it gave me the life that I, oh, I beyond my wildest dreams, I would never have thought possible to have the life I have today. Okay, once up with this fairly low-acting emotional intoxicant can lead to distorted perception, giant mountain, mountains mushroom out of little tiny molehills. Problems are magnified and calamities loom on all sides. The drunkenness progresses to the crying stage. The dialogue runs. Nobody loves me. Nobody appreciates me. <laughs> Nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, I try. I'm, I'm sorry, slobbering all over everything, and then over and over with this lack of appreciation. I can't do anything right. Sob, sob. I might as well be dead. Sob, sob. <laughs> Set to a mournful tune, these lines are played over and over in a half-dark, gloomy, and unswept mental hangout. At the center of self-pity is a half-grown kid having a slobbering, blubbering temper fit at God. Self-circumstances and people as long as he can keep the drunk tears flowing, he does not have to leave or go out into the light. Solution. Hourly, hourly doses of daily gratitude, appreciation, and admission of God's grace. Stop hanging out in mental dumps. Stop keeping company with bad companions of resentment, fear, and selfishness. Don't flirt with self-justification and self-righteousness, which will sweet-talk you into a dive. 
Total abstinence is hardly possible unless the self-pity trips are replaced with being others-centered. Substitute daily contact with a higher power and group members for frequent visits to the self-pity bars. Resentments. Now, when we're doing this, um, this six-step, we write all these things down, and then we say the seven-step prayer, and then on the other side, we write down next to each resentment what we can do to help God remove it. And so what you put maybe for resentment is practice acceptance. You know, just practice acceptance of people the way they are because there's nothing you can do to change them. Um, an emotional intoxicant distilled from character defects. Guaranteed to impede progress in steps three and two. Drinking of resentment poisons spiritual progress. Often leads to emotional enslavement to the hated people and things. An effective way to stay drunk on resentment is to bar hop from anger to self-pity to intolerance to jealousy to fear and home to an unbelievable hangover and depression. Um, I want to talk a little bit about forgiveness. Uh, you did a beautiful job on forgiveness, Barbara. But some of us have come into these programs with horrific, horrific things. And forgiveness is not easy. Uh, on some of these things, it is not easy. My daughter could not forgive her perpetrator. She drank again. She had three years of sobriety. She drank again. She started using cocaine. She had all these drugs in the house. Nobody will ever know what it's like to have your daughter kidnapped, raped, and almost murdered in sobriety, and then have to put her out of the house in her drinking and using. I had to make her leave because she was putting my sobriety in jeopardy. Um, she did finally, finally come back to the programming and get sober, but her problem was every sponsor she got would say, you have to forgive your perpetrator. So she'd try and forgive and she'd drink. You have to forgive your perpetrator. She'd try and forgive and she'd drink. It was constantly reminding her of the incident and finally she got a sponsor, a, a gay man who was just awesome. And he said, let's just put that crap on the back burner. Let's get you through the steps and get you working with others. And then he took her to um, Metro Metropolitan State Hospital. She thought she was going to um, the detox. But where he took her on a panel to talk was lockdown facility for the criminally insane. Uh, pedophiles, rapists all the things she was terrified of. And when she realized where she was at, she started to have a panic attack and they locked the door behind her. And she's the only woman, uh, they're all men, and the rest of the people on the panel were men. And she just didn't know what she was gonna share. But what she finally shared was not about the rape and the kidnap, she just shared about things in her life that were so horrific that she just can't believe in God. She can't believe in a loving God. And afterwards, all those guys lined up to talk to her. And they shared their childhoods with her. And that's the first time she was able to feel compassion. And she, that's when she reached the forgiveness of the man that kidnapped her. And when she came home, she looked like she had a facelift. Honest to God, everything, her face changed. 
She was just different. It was so amazing. But it was in God's time. It took nine years for her to reach that point, but it was in God's time. But she was willing. She prayed, you know, to reach that point. But sometimes we just have to be willing. The, the indispensable key, willingness. And it'll happen in God's time. Solution. Refuse to let one's serenity be drowned out by happenings that are in themselves unimportant, says Odette on page 266. Nobody can hurt our feelings without our permission. A daily step 10 keeps the system clear of clogged feelings about ourselves and others. And I'm going to tell you step 10 is such a vital step, and I do my step 10 out of the big book, only it's under step 11. 10, 11 are really, and 12 are all commingled in the big book. So, you know, in step 10 it says continue watching for self selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. And then it's reiterated in step 11 on retiring at night. And it asks seven questions. And the first one it asks, were you resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? Have you kept something to yourself that you should share with another person? It asks all these questions. And then it asks for the good things, because it's not, it's not a fearful inventory. It's something that's supposed to help you. And it says, were you kind and loving toward all? If I'm kind and loving towards 90% of the people, I put that down because I've covered the other 10% in the first question. And it says, were you packing into the mainstream of life? Everybody in this room is packing into the mainstream of life. You're not out there doing what you used to do, even if it's just for an hour or three hours or five hours. I mean, you're packing into the mainstream of life right at this moment. And then it says, we must be careful not to drift into remorse or morbid reflection for that would diminish our usefulness to others. So the main thing is after you've done that work, you've done that step 10, you need to try to stay out of it. You don't need to go back and keep rehashing it and rehashing it and rehashing it. I mean, that just that's just destructive. So you try not to get into that remorse or morbid reflection. And God will make that possible. Jealousy. A powerful concoction of resentment, fear, self-pity, low self-esteem, and insecurity. Drinking freely and often from jealousy allows one to lose self-control. The mental blend diminishes peace of mind, dangerously threatens faith and trust in self and others. Jealousy brought into the program hurts the group unity in the fellowship. And I see a, a lot of that going on in the program. I see a lot of people that are jealous of speakers. They think this is such... I'm telling you, this is hard work. It's not all glory. It's late airplanes, being alone in airports, getting some nut to pick you up who doesn't know how to drive and their car breaks down. I mean, you just wouldn't, it's, it's not all that glorious. But a lot of people really, I had someone come up and say, I wouldn't listen to a circuit speaker for anything. I said, well, I wouldn't be one for anything. I mean, I didn't, never wanted to do this in the first place, but... And I believe jealousy is all about how we feel about ourselves. Lack of self-esteem, lack of self-confidence. And I believe that if you take actions contrary to the way you feel, you're going to attain that confidence. And when you're confident, you don't experience that jealousy. You just feel so good about yourself, you just don't have that jealousy. It's just goes away and that's doing things like the 12 steps working with uh, with others was the thing that made me the most happy about myself 
that's the first time I realized I liked myself because of my working with others. Because my first inventory was all, I'm resentful at myself, 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 myself. I couldn't even think of my, my real dad, who was an older married man and got my teenage mom pregnant and abandoned us. I couldn't think those thoughts. I was just so angry at myself. I knew right from wrong. I had high morals and values that I, I didn't act on. But working with others is the one thing that brought about the change in my attitude towards myself. And I became a woman of dignity and grace. And I really like the person I am today. Solution, recovery is possible through daily attention to spiritual needs. Humility, daily injections, injected disperses the residual effects of jealousy. Step four and a step five reveals the exact nature of one's compulsion to this green-eyed monster. Step six and seven also route this insidious mind bender. Dishonesty and self-deception. This is talking about self-dishonesty. Emotional intoxicants, which, like champagne, seem harmless, are subtly laced with rationalization and equivocation. Indulgence in this pair of defects can cause one to cross over into crippling self-deceit with the greatest of ease. The side effects makes us feel sure we are not the maker of our own mischief. We cannot understand why our friends' benefits from the program are not coming to us as we see them coming to others. We cannot give up our secret flirtation with this pair of faults until we are brought painfully to the bottom, facing another surrender. I used to have severe panic attacks up until 10 years of sobriety. And I mean, they were so bad, my legs would buckle out, I would just almost collapse, hyperventilate, break into a sweat, they were just awful. And I became almost homebound. I could get to home, to my job, and to a meeting. That was it, I couldn't go out of the city of Long Beach. And um, when I became business manager of this uh, musical theater corporation, I had to start traveling. You know, and my sponsor told me to get on the freeway and get off on the first exit. She told me to get on the freeway the next day and get off on the second exit. Get on the freeway the third day and get on off on the third exit until I was able to get out of the city of Long Beach and always listen to AA tapes. That's what really helped me. But so I'm going to school uh, for accounting. I'm business manager of this corporation, which is very impressive. All of our productions had major stars because it was equity. And I had to go to my first meeting where I represented my company. And this was a birthday party for Debbie Reynolds. Now, I know most of you don't know who Debbie Reynolds is. But when I was a little girl, I loved Debbie Reynolds. I mean, she was to dance and sing. And she, uh, she was just my favorite actress. She really was. And I'm going to her 58th birthday party. I was just so impressed with myself. I didn't know what to do. And so I'm sitting there at a table with a bunch of stars, you know, stage screen and TV, and some of my coworkers, and I'm ill at ease. Everybody's drinking. They're not drinking alcoholically. That would have turned me off. They were drinking socially, and it really looked inviting. This disease is so cunning, baffling, and powerful. I sat there, and I thought to myself, well, you know, maybe now that I have this very impressive job, I have an education. I drive a brand new car, I have a house. 
Maybe I'm really not that little girl from the other side of the tracks. Maybe I drank because of situations. And I was talking myself into taking a drink. And the only reason why I didn't take that drink that night is because my coworkers knew I was in AA. And I did not want to embarrass this program by drinking in front of my coworkers. So I had planned on drinking the next day. This is two weeks without a meeting, 10 years of sobriety, self-deception, self-dishonesty. And um, so I was going to drink the next day. And the next day, uh, the executive director came up to me and she asked me to go pay a 12-step call on a makeup artist. And that was not in my plans and I wasn't happy about it. But he hadn't shown up at work for two weeks and he was held up in a motel and the motel's trying to get him out. So I called a man to go with me and I went and I knocked on the door and I identified myself, Michael Alcoholic, and he opened the door. Now if that was me, I wouldn't have opened the door. <laughs> he opened the door and he was bleeding from head to toe. He kept falling into objects. He was profusely sweating. He was 10 times his normal size from bloat. He smelled of alcohol, he smelled of urine, and he smelled of vomit. And I stood there speechless because he's bald-headed, and I knew him as a makeup artist with this blonde wavy hair, and I thought maybe I had the wrong room. But as I stood there speechless, I had one of those spiritual experiences. I had an inner voice saying, Michael, you are not like the people you were with last night. If you drink again, you're standing in front of a mirror. And that man doesn't know it, but he's the one who made the 12-step call on me. Because that night I got my fanny into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I recommitted to this program. My sponsor had died, and that's when I, I got Polly as a sponsor by recommitting to this program. And I'm so thankful I didn't have to take that drink. But what that did is that's given me compassion to people who slip. I don't judge that today because I know how easy it can happen. But we gotta not let up on doing our work. You know, we've got work here to do and not to let up on it. And meetings are so important because you get to see the newcomer that comes in that reminds you of where you came from. And it's easy to forget after 10 years of having a perfect life. It's easy to forget. Solution, recuperation from the DTs of dishonesty and self-deception requires accepting responsibility for these faults. We must stop manipulating ourselves and others. We must treat the spiritual malady with rigorous honesty, a noticeable change brought about by this a meticulous application of the 12 steps to our lives. Criticism. A social cocktail made with equal parts of rumor gossip Secret glee over others' misfortune. It feels so good to be smug and say, poor thing. First thing I noticed about the South, they talk about each other in the South, and then they go, bless their heart. <laughs> I just couldn't get it. Everybody did that. They say something bad about somebody and say, bless their heart. <laughs> I no judgment about the South. I just thought it was cute. <laughs> so, poor thing. Righteousness is too good to resist. Such behavior hurts and humiliates others and can, especially in the case of newcomers, drive them away. They have come to Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon in good faith and can be driven away believing that this program, that these programs are not so special after all. 
solution. This is what I what I tell people to do when they have uh, when they're criticizing somebody. I always tell them I want you to look for something good in them. I don't care if it's just pretty eyes. I don't care if it's a good personality. I don't care what it is, but I want you to find something good about that person, and I want you to focus on it. I uh, there is this woman in my area that just hated my guts, and I have no idea why. She and she was furious that I got married to Ted. And um, there was a man named Leon. He was a taper in our area, and. I had a problem with him because I really loved him at first, but then I sponsored a lot of women. And many of them came up to me and told me that Leon had hit on them, was making passes at them and doing inappropriate things. And I was appalled. And when I saw him hitting on one of my girls, I'd go over there, I'd snatch her up and I'd say, stay away from her. And so he didn't like me either. And so... I can't imagine why, <laughs> but anyway, you know, we had kind of worked ourselves through this because he saw how hard I worked with others. I have, li- all the years, I've had newcomers living with me anywhere from one to six. I have the soldiers in my house every Wednesday night. He really came to respect how hard I worked in this program. And I started watching him and he made all these tapes and he gave them away free and people who couldn't understand English he would make sure they got a tape in another language or he would get braille or I watched him go out of his way to make sure people had their needs met and I really started to respect him and the last time just before he died he started calling me honey bunch oh the thing that he did what what he did for me on my 20th anniversary he made me a set of gold CDs of my first workshop with my sponsor, Polly. And he had a case over it, and it was just special. It was beautiful. He put a lot of work and a lot of thought into it. And we just, our relationship was good. And the last night he talked before he died, he gave me a big hug, and he called me Honey Bunch. And um, Sherry who hates me and thinks Leon hates me because she doesn't know that we're friends now. At the funeral, she's got this big book that she's taking to everybody to sign. She takes it to my husband to sign this. I'm put, putting it in the coffin with Leon. Leon's, Leon's being cremated, but okay. <laughs> she purposely jerked the book away because she didn't want me signing it. And uh, she was sitting in the first pew, and honest to God, I'm not exaggerating and I'm not criticizing, I just am reporting facts. She's doing this. <laughs> We're sitting in the second pew and the, the family asked us after the priest was done to get up there and share some stories about Leon. And they just, we do that in California all the time, but they just didn't do it in that area. And so people are invited to come up and share stories with Leon. And I kept hitting my husband because he was his sponsor. I kept hitting my husband and he goes, I can't, I just can't. Nobody's getting up there. And then finally one person got up there and shared some BS sobbing stuff that, I mean, it was just pathetic. And what the family wanted was some laughter because Leon laughed a lot. So I got up there, I started to get up there and just share some of his, his funny things about him, like calling all the women honey bunch and hugging him and, 
just sweet things about him. So I started to walk up there, and Sherry's in the first pew, 300 people in the church. She stands up, and she screams to the top of her voice, Don't you dare! Leon hated your guts! I mean, I was so devastated. I was embarrassed, humiliated, all these people in the church, and I just felt so sorry for the family. I mean, what a way to ruin a funeral for the family. And I got up and said a few things anyway, but I couldn't fight back the tears. I sat back down, and I just couldn't stop crying. And afterwards, I, wa- I went out to the back door, had someone take me home. And my husband came home, and he was mad because I left the church. And I should, know, I should be bigger than that, is what he said. And he threw something down. I took it as our only fight, and I threw it back at him. And I said, you know what? I'm not some guru or big hotshot speaker in AA. I'm a human being, and I have feelings. And I slammed the door on his face. So he took it to some people, sponsors and other people, and, of course, they just creamed him, you know, because they all, their hearts were all broken for me. So I had to go out of town for three weekends um, speaking with this fresh, freshly happening. And I just couldn't stand it. I couldn't live with it. So I, I just did what I needed to do. I wrote Sherry a letter. And in the letter, I started out with how much I admired her as a stepmom to her son, how much I admired her as a husband to Chuck, how much I admired her for the gift of being able to work with autistic children. And I said, Sherry, I don't know what I did to make you hate my guts, but whatever it is, I'm sorry. I'm truly sorry. I've never meant to hurt you. And I closed it and I mailed it. And I read it to my sponsor and I read it to somebody in Augusta who couldn't believe I was doing that. But that set me free. I mean, I wouldn't have made that three weeks. You know, I mean, that just set me free. It didn't help her a lot. She took it around telling people, look at this stupid litter. <laughs> and then and then at Christmas time, they had nowhere to go. And Ted said, can we invite him over? And I said, of course. So they walk in and Sherry says, okay, let's get this over with. <laughs> we walk into the AA room and she says, okay, I don't know what that letter was about, but whatever, I guess I'm sorry. I said, Sherry, all I know is that letter set me free. And I walked out. And uh, it's... It's been okay since then. We don't talk very much, but I was just in a meeting with her, and she talked very highly of me working the steps, because I'd worked the steps with her and stuff. But that kind of action, I mean, you feel justified hating that person and not wanting to have anything to do with that person and just feed it, feed it, feed it. But I took a set of actions contrary to the way I felt, and I gave her positive stuff before I even talked about her feelings towards me and it set me free. And I know today I can do that in any situation. Solution. We need to read the directions on our own prescription. Doesn't it say we should pay attention to our own needs for recovery? The ODAT says on page 92, the contented, well-adjusted person has no need to look for flaws in others. Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon are fellowships of equals. Neither brains, money, looks, prestige, education, cleverness, nor lack of these kept alcoholism and its effects away from us. Daily cultivate love that looks for nothing in return 
and meditate on our own good fortune to enjoy the free gift of God's grace. Depression. I'm a person who's had panic attacks, but I don't understand depression. I mean, I never had depression at the depths that some of my sponsees have. And then I went into menopause. (laughs) And all I can tell you is menopause, what an order, my husband just can't go through with it. And this was in our first year of marriage. Oh, my God. I was like, I mean, I was like the caged animal, and I couldn't sleep, and I paced up and down. He just thought I was crazy. He thought he married this circuit speaker who was, you know, (laughs) (laughs) well-adjusted. And now he knows he's married a nut, and um, I want to go back to California. And he wants me to go back to California, to be truthful. (laughs) So I'm having a secret phone conversation with my sponsor in the bathroom, talking to Polly. And I said, Polly, I want to come home. She said, what? I said, I I just got to get out of here. I want to come home. I need my support group. She says, you can't leave. You made a commitment to marriage. And it wasn't one-year commitment, two years of sobriety commitment, you know those commitments. You have 15 years of sobriety, and you made a commitment to marriage, and you have to stay. You have to work those steps and those traditions in your marriage. And I said, but Ted wants me to leave too. And she said, I don't care what Ted wants. If Ted wants to leave, let him leave. And he walked in the door right then when she said that to me, you know, so quietly just set the phone down. I didn't hang up. I set it down. I looked at my husband and I said, I'm not leaving this marriage. I'm going to work the 12 steps in this marriage. I'm going to work the 12 traditions in this marriage. And if you want out, you leave. (laughs) He looked at me and he said, but this is my house. (laughs) And I heard Polly on the phone laughing her butt off. She was laughing so hard, it made me laugh. And then my husband laughed. And with all that laughter, it healed the whole thing. But one thing I'm very thankful for this bout of depression in this menopause is I finally felt those levels of depression that some of my sponsees felt. And my sponsor, she suffers terrible depression. Bill suffered terrible depression. And for that short time, I got to know how black and dark it was. And I have much more compassion working with my sponsees that have depression. So it's something that I'm thankful for. Solution, huge daily doses of an attitude of gratitude. We need a willingness to surrender this unique pain. Sobriety follows quickly when one can be grateful for pain rather than struggling with it. Thanking God for pain relapses it back into his care. We are saying that we realize we are not perfect enough to manage all our affairs and that we recognize also that his principles provide us with protection and guidance. Gratitude brings release. Release brings experience. Experience brings hope. Hope brings faith. Faith brings freedom from fear. A spiritual awakening takes place, a rebirth occurs, and one is never the same again. Blame. (laughs) Oh, I was really good at blame. I blame people, places, and things for the way I lived. For my prostituting, my stealing, my drinking, 
everything I did, it was my mom's fault. It was her alcoholism. It was the way I was raised. I just blamed everything on everyone. I never took responsibility. Um, after I got sober in this program, I took a good look at that sister of mine because she came from the very same background. She was also illegitimate, born out of wedlock. Had to deal with all this stuff about my mom because I left at the age of 15 and she was two years old and she had to go through all this. And so she uh, had to move out. She moved out. She quit school. But what she did is she took that high school equivalency test and she had to take it three times until she finally passed it. With this test under her belt under special youth program, she went to work for the city of Long Beach. At the age of 26, my, t my sister retired from the city of Long Beach. She took her 10 years retirement pay, bought her own business. She later married the head traffic engineer of the city of Long Beach and they're still married. And sometimes I just don't get it. <laughs> same mom, same background, but different reactions. And the difference is my sister is not an alcoholic. My sister is not bodily and mentally different from her fellows. My sister reacts to life situations differently than I do. And I see her on Facebook all the time. She works for Caesars Palace in a high position. And she, is, she and this other woman were just voted probably the two only women in the most hundred influential people in Las Vegas. I get to see, she didn't tell me about it, I get to see it on Facebook. And I'm just so proud of her. She's just amazing. And when I first started speaking, I spoke at two conventions and my mom died and I was too raw to talk, but I had to go speak for the Pacific group. Have any of you, you know what the Pacific, Anna. Wow. Oh, <laughs> I'm just, I'm taken by surprise. Okay, so the Pacific group is Clancy's group. There's always like between 1,300, 1,700 people there. It's, I'm more afraid of talking there than any place I can think of because I've been told they have this thing that looks like a space station and it has lights on it and if you don't stop at this color light they turn off the microphone and I mean all this stuff but the Pacific group is real high energy everybody's laughing everybody's happy everybody has to wear a suit the men wear suits and the women wear dresses they believe in wearing your sobriety and my sister was so impressed when she walked in there and just felt the energy and the love she sat in the front row with me, and I got up there and I shared my story. And I, I shared about graduating from high school in 1985 and being 36 years old. And I watched these tears streaming down her face. And after I finished my story and I sat down next to her, she goes, God, I wish I was an alcoholic. <laughs> Honest to God, I, there, could not, there was no higher compliment. As my sister said, she, she, it was just so powerful there. She just really wished she had what we have. Solution, a relentless inventory process must go on in our lives. Through this process, if we are honest, we, we will not lose sight of the part we play in our problems. By accepting responsibility for ourselves, we are no longer at the mercy of any ill will that blows. Total abstinence from blame brings miracles of tolerance, grace, rich spiritual rewards reflected in a life of real fulfillment. On page 347 of ODAT can be found the statement, most of that which happens to me, good or bad, is self-created. And I have a sign on my mirror 
that says you're looking at the problem. And I truly know I'm the problem. <laughs> and that's a, a freedom. Fear and faith. Actually, the defect is fear. This is a something that God gave us for survival. I mean, to be afraid of a man standing there with a knife is a healthy fear. Unreasonable fear, talked in as Bill sees it, he calls it unreasonable fears, are the fears that kept me in bondage in Long Beach. And I couldn't leave Long Beach. I couldn't fly and I couldn't talk at a podium. It just, it just paralyzed me. And um, I hear things in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous that are not in the big book. And the one thing I used to hear from this one man is, you cannot have fear and faith at the same time. That if you have fear, you don't have any faith. And he'd pass out coins that say fear on one side and faith on the other side. And I had worked these steps as hard as I could work these steps. And I've had many spiritual experiences, but I still had overwhelming fear. And I went up to him. I said, what am I doing wrong in my program? Why do I still have all this fear? And he told me in the most arrogant, smug way, he says, well, it sounds to me like you haven't taken a thorough third step. Today, I know I had taken a thorough third step because for me, a thorough third step is a process for me. It's the process of taking those actions of four through nine. When I've taken those actions, I've taken a thorough third step. So I was tattling on him, praying on this man's shoulder, another old timer, and I said, he says that I don't have any faith because I still have fear. And Bill said, Michael, nowhere in the big book does it say you cannot have fear and faith at the same time. And he took me to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and he pointed out a sentence to me on page 68. Of course, it's on the fear inventory. And that sentence says, all men of faith have courage. All men of faith have courage. And then he pointed out to me that you don't need courage unless you're afraid. And then he read that last little sentence. Oh, the last two of the last sentences in that paragraph. The one says, the fear prayer, God remove my fear and direct my attention to what you'd have me be. And for me personally, I'm always directed to work with another person, whether they're in the program or out of the program. I help somebody and I can get out of that fear. And that last sentence says, at once we commence to outgrow fear. It doesn't say at once we outgrow fear. It says we commence to outgrow fear. So I can tell you I'm 35 years sober and I'm still commencing. But that's okay. It's covered in step 10 and 11. You know, we should continue watching for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. It should continue for a lifetime. I mean, it, I'm covered. I'm covered in steps 10 and 11. Solution, faith. Now, I don't agree with this, so I don't even want to read it, but I will read I will read it. Faith, as fear drains away, it is replaced with faith. The inner knowledge that God is in charge, therefore, all is well. Fear can erode the faith if we are slack about our commitment, and we must remember faith and fear cannot coexist. I don't believe that. Strike that from the tape, please. No. <laughs> That's somebody's opinion. We all have opinions. What works for one person might not work for another person. And I go with what's in the big book. So, a choice must be made. On page 155 of ODAT, it says, We realize peace of mind does not depend on conditions outside, but those inside us. And we're almost through. 
because I'm really hot up here. <laughs> emotional sobriety enables us to carry heavy emotional burdens with relative ease. The more gentle the environment, the less need we feel for self-protection. The more threatening the environment, our feeling of well-being, the greater the timidity and need for self-protection. The disease of alcoholism can be a tremendous obstacle to emotional growth. Our protective fences became walls of isolation, cutting off experiences with people and things. Most of us were convinced we had not succeeded in winning at the excessive competitiveness found in the affairs of our lives. If we felt we had succeeded, then we were really confused at why we could not beat alcohol. Either way, we could not get emotionally comfortable. Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon offer a way out of this dilemma. Our one given to emotional slips has no way of knowing when the compulsion may exert itself. Damn. Emotional sobriety isn't a sometime thing. We can recognize the emotional binges are often emotional vulnerability. When we understand and accept emotions instead of fighting them, when we find constructive ways of expressed feelings, and when we keep our sense of humor, and if you don't have a sense of humor, get one. <laughs> Emotional sobriety comes when we accentuate positive emotions. And the one thing I do also that helps me with my emotional sobriety when I'm feeling in a funk, I start writing down every spiritual experience I've had over the years, even the one I had before I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. And when you see this huge lift, list of spiritual experiences, there's just no doubt that there's a God that's taking care of me. So you might want to try looking at spiritual experiences, and you might try looking for them. Sometimes they're happening and you're not even aware of it. Thank you.